Hey, it's Julie Pilot from The Idea Fountain, and today's episode is all about DIY, do-it-yourself. At the risk of being cliche, growing up in the Seattle music scene had a profound impact on who I am today. Whether it be in music or any profession, it's easy to not want to start until someone gives you the cosign or a green light that you're official. I was surrounded by people in a scene not far from Portland and Nike that live by the mantra, just do it and figure out how to do it yourself. That was making your own t-shirts, booking your own shows, designing a poster and hanging up snipes all around town. I even remember doing it yourself when we would put on shows, we would design the light shows ourselves. (laughs) I kid you not. Do you remember those old school overhead projectors we used to have in classrooms and the teachers had those plastic sheets for lesson plans. Dude, all you would have to do is take one of those water and food coloring and the stage practically looked like a Pink Floyd show. Not to mention at my college station, imagine this. I would be out there with hammers and nails building a wall with my other classmates so the pit would be safe at a show. We would bake Rice Krispie treats for hospitality for the bands. We took tickets at the shows in between interviewing the band and doing stage announcements. That kind of training made me who I am today as a professional. Today on the Idea Fountain, we're talking to Molly Newman, president at Song Trust, drummer for Bratmobile, and one of the original founders of the Riot Girl movement. Advance warning, we may have gone down a music rabbit hole here and there. We may have geeked out about bands and the good old days in Seattle. However, I really believe the DIY spirit and mentality will inspire movement in any career or aspect of your life. Enjoy. I-D-E-A-F-O-U-N-E-A-I-N. This is the Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations. So, Molly, I'm going to, there's so many things I could talk to you about, but I really want to talk to you today that the title of this episode is DIY, and for those don't, who don't know, DIY stands for? Do it yourself. Do it yourself. <laughs> um, because uh, you really were a part of something that subconsciously, unintentionally, right place at right time, just because I grew up in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. like really became character defining for me. And, and I want to talk about that and how you've built your whole career, not only as an artist, an advocate, but also now professionally doing huge things at every single one of your jobs to champion creatives. And it all has run through this DIY aesthetic. Um, so before we like dive deep into everything that happened while you were in school and after and in a band in Olympia, um, let's just, just give us the behind the music. Molly Newman from Song Trust, but where did it all start? It's funny. I mean, I, I, it starts probably even, you know, more at the beginning, you know, being growing up in Washington, DC um, and being a part of 
you know, and also being a part of a family that was um, worked in politics. So I was, you know, as a baby, my parents were both working um, for different Congress people or in Congress. And um, so that was really sort of the atmosphere that I was exposed to. But they also being part of a family that split up when I was pretty young. So um, I think my parents probably separated when I was five or six. Um, and and that was, you know, a pretty defining uh, element of, you know, confusion and self sort of reliance. I was also an only kid. Mm-hmm. So I had to um, entertain myself in ways that my daughter, who is also an only kid and will be, um, doesn't have to because she has so many tools, tricks and devices uh, at her, you know, disposal um, for entertainment. But which is, um, which is funny because, you know, I am an only kid also. Uh-huh. And uh, one of my friends who also doesn't have any brothers and sisters, we joke that the pandemic was the time only kids won because <laughs> we knew how to entertain ourselves already. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's true. Like, and you know, the, all the things about parenting now is it's so it's so wildly different. Um, I think also, you know, my I grew up in the '70s and '80s, and you know, it was a different time of humanity. All all better or worse, right? You know, we just we were all struggling. We didn't reflect this much. We didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't seek counseling, probably in the way that you know a lot of us are fortunate to be able to do. So, you know, all of those things in terms of me having, finding some drive, I do think sometimes connects to a lot of the, the ways that I've approached my career and the, the, you know, the opportunities that, that I've had um, or manifested in, in certain cases for myself, because I did, I wanted to be, I was always drawn to performance and I was always drawn to music and I was, um, you know, very, much interested in, you know, I, I actually went to college originally to be an actor and that was, you know, pretty organized when I reflect back on it, like, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I'll go to school, I'll get my, my degree, but in the summer I'll do X and Y. And then, you know, after four years of college with my, you know, theater degree, I'll work at this no, I'll, I'll try to have this job and that job. Sorry, you have a question. Was, that, well, was Evergreen your first stop for college? <laughs> no, I started at the University of Oregon. Um, okay. I transferred to Evergreen after two years. So I, I quickly decided I didn't want to be a theater major, probably after my first quarter at U of O. Um, but I had landed there partially because I had done a program at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival when I was a junior, uh, the summer before my senior year in high school. Um, so I kind of found out about the Northwest. I didn't really, I wasn't really that familiar with it. Um, and I looked at colleges in Portland and Oregon. Um, I didn't really go, I didn't look at, uh, UW for whatever reason, I don't think, but, um, uh, I ended up, you know, going to Oregon and happened to find, um, you know, in my next door neighbor in the dorms, someone who was from Olympia. Um, Allison Wolf, who became my bandmate in uh, Bratmobile, and um, it was like a real townie of Olympia. She had lived other places. I think she had lived in um, in northern Washington. I'm escaping the name, um, Mount something. Um, <laughs> just like a, a little bit north on, on the five on the way to Vancouver, but um, she 
Mount Vernon. Um, she had lived in Mount Vernon for a while, but then they um, settled in Olympia. And so she was part of, you know, going to local shows and going to shows in Tacoma and going to shows in Seattle from, you know, her teen years. And I was from DC and sort of like really into music, but yeah, it's, it's interesting thinking back on it now, because when I was in high school, I was, a li- I, I didn't have the same sort of I was in a sort of insular zone and I didn't like go to shows by myself. And I, my, my friends was, my group of friends was pretty small. So we didn't like do that until I actually went to the university of Oregon, met someone from Olympia, met all the bands from DC on tour. And then I started going to shows when I would go home for summer break and spring break and all those sorts of things. So it was kind of like, like, let's go through like a little bit (laughs) interesting timeline because I always like try to figure this out in my head. It's so funny to me. So like mid eighties to like 90, let's say Mm -hmm. like scene. And I don't know how much you know, this, know this versus like, what year would you say you landed in Olympia? Like, was it more I started like going to shows even... in 1990. So the first nice. show I went to in Olympia was um, a little band called Nirvana opening for the Melvins with a beat happening opening the show. So um, that was like the first real like Olympia North, like Washington Northwest show. I didn't been to some shows in, in Eugene, but like that was that was like the sort of transcendental Grange Hall, um, you know, like low ceilings, everybody freaking out, like, and really everybody there for the Melvins. Like well, that, was the, so that was the band. That's <laughs> I always try to figure out the timeline with the evolution of rock in Seattle, because, you know, in like the eighties, like MTV had Headbangers Ball, but like Soundgarden, it feels like we're kind of like first in, like they were still hard enough to be on Headbangers Ball, but it was mm-hmm. like this own sound of Seattle. And like, I think about like Heart was big in Seattle and Queensryche. Right. But when, like where I'm just unsure is like in the mid to late 80s, I guess there was Mother Love Bone, right? Like that was really early in. Like right. when the more indie scene like really started thriving, I told you the story. <laughs> I was like a little kid in junior high and there was an article in Sassy Magazine about um, somebody that started an indie label in Chicago. And mm-hmm. you could write them a self-addressed stamped envelope and they would send right. you like a tape back or something. <laughs> and I was a little kid in Kent, Washington, mm-hmm. which is smack dab between Seattle and Tacoma. And right. I was just looking, listening to commercial radio. And whatever this record label was, I sent them a letter and I said, there's no good music on the radio in Seattle. Um, please send me your tape. And they hit me back and they're like, are you kidding me? Every good band is from Seattle. That's funny. This band, this band, this band, this band. And that's where like I started making pilgrimages to Seattle right. to go to like Orpheum Records and right. get a copy of The Stranger and study yeah. every single thing. And that's when they talked me about Olympia, K Records and Kill Rockstar. Yeah, I mean, it's just all definitely before Kill Rockstars. Um, and we... So, you know, Allison was from Olympia. She brought to school. So like when we started college, she had all the K tapes. So K had a lot of compilation tapes. They had their um, their catalog, which was not like 
created on any frequency. It was like, so it was definitely like an event when it would be um, issued and mailed out. And it was, you know, like on very specific yellow newsprint. And, you know, like you could, like you were talking about, you could study it. Um, and, uh, And so she had all these bands. And I think what was really, like sort of the the moment of transformation for me was like, yeah, I had grown up in DC. So a lot of the music that I was into in high school was this blend of what was on the radio. So I listened to R&B radio primarily, um, 93 KYS. And um, that was that was sort of like the, the, the main station for me. WHFS what didn't have a strong enough uh, sort of signal to get from Baltimore, I think it was to Washington at that time. So it would be like, you know, you could maybe get it in. Um, and things like 120 minutes on MTV, maybe you would, you know, like if I, I didn't have MTV my whole, like the whole time I was in high school. So I would kind of like see it at friends' houses and maybe try to pay attention. And then I got into, you know, Zeppelin and Bob Marley and Depeche Mode and New Order and like all of that sort of like, you know, that my tastes as I would like buy records, I would experiment a little bit more, but they're expensive and it wasn't all you can gather, you know, the way it is now and all of, all of the things were just like a little bit more selective. And, and so my, when I, I was, but I got into REM pretty, pretty seriously, like I REM, B-52s. too. When you were shy, right. you were like the gatekeeper. <laughs> yeah. The- and, and a funny story about like that when I went to college, so it's really into AM or um, Green was out, and um, they they played in Seattle in like October of '89, something like that. And there was another friend I had met who was from Seattle, and he was willing to like drive to the show. I honestly, I don't even know if we like stayed. I can't remember if we stayed anywhere because I didn't know anyone up there. Um, like drove back something like really ridiculous, which is possible. I mean, it's taking one for the team, it's but it's possible. four or five hours, right? Yeah, it's possible. It's totally possible. Um, and that was so that was like one you know side of things. But what she brought to me and exposed me to was like this music that was so <laughs> some of the like you know ways to describe it might be like rudimentary or you know simplistic or childish or babyish or whatever but it was so pure and so melodic and so like um infectious so things like that never really became popular on k like as popular as be happening but like uh this band called oklahoma scramble which was just a woman and a guy singing um Mechanormal, which we've put out records for the past 40 years, I think. Um, and all of these other bands that when I heard them, I had got brought a guitar to, to college. Like that was what I used my summer job money for. And I was taking lessons and I was like, and Allison was really inspired by, um, she, she wasn't like really into learning an instrument. She just wanted to write lyrics and sing. And so when we would go to like, we would crash frat parties and stuff. We were very much not frat party people, but we wanted like the jungle juice or whatever free booze you could get at a, at a frat party. And we, and like these, these sort of like rock bands would play, you know, college bands. And then when they would like take a break, we would start singing the happening songs 
on the mic and like freak everybody out. I mean, cause they would really not know what was going on. What are these girls doing? What is this music? Cause it's very monotone with like a yeah. little thing, you know? And um, we were just like, I thought it was hilarious. And we would like, you know, ride our bikes and like, you know, laugh about that, you know, rolling away. And then we decided to start our own band. So as in a parallel, you know, we were students I was taking a lot of classes in sociology and ethnic studies and started to take classes in with women's studies. And I just sort of convergence of, you know, realizing if we would go to um, House of Records as a store in Eugene that you would go to and, you know, you could like go through the bins and really try to find a band that like obviously had a woman in it, but you, you know, not necessarily, obviously they, they weren't on the cover, they weren't clearly stated names, like just how hard it was to see women making music um, was really kind of the driving factor. Like, okay, well, seriously, if we don't do it, why not? You know, we might as well. And simultaneously, our friends were doing that, that people that we met. So we started a fanzine. We traded fanzines with, you know, other people. Um, in Olympia, bands were starting with with women in them. One band that already was happening was um, Kathleen Hanna's band, Viva Knievel, that preceded um, Bikini Kill. But it was um, it was sort of like you know they were clearly like she was clearly a, ma a major force of like powerful performance. Um, and when she and Toby started to sort of you know talk about making their band I wasn't friends with them exactly yet but like we would like walk we would go to shows a lot of times uh Allison and I would go back and like stay with her mom and um go to shows in Olympia and we started to like know them and then we started to sort of like as we made our fanzine and decided to start our band and they started their band and Kathy joined um it's just sort of all kind of this energy was was happening I think it was not totally well received locally, I would say. Like some people were very, oh, that's amazing. And some people were like, what, what's the problem? I'm a woman doing this, you know, I'm, you know, there are other, there are women who have been doing things for so long, you know, there's lots of different perspectives. It was a really a perfect storm of energy from lots of different places. So I don't think you could like look at one individual or one school or one circumstance or one town it was like you know I, I think the other I always sort of like to recognize that some of the other sort of realities of activism in music that we were all sort of exposed to you know in the 80s um I think music was one one um, point of, of energy around the anti-apartheid anti movement. And especially in, in DC, you would see a lot of like punk protests, um, you know, like a rock against Reagan and things that like were starting to track towards, you know, rock for choice. Um, and uh, there was a sort of parallel of, of activism and using music and especially punk as a vehicle for, you know, um, protest and, you know, trying to have those elements of, of you know, like, like political energy, I guess, 
um, alongside music that um, that was definitely just part of my like frame of reference. So even though I wasn't like down there beating drums at a show or at a, at a protest necessarily myself, like I was aware of it. And I think you know, these seeds are planted. Um, and then, you know, we're looking at the Gulf War, the first Gulf War um, starting and all of the sort of protests that went along with that, um, as well as just sort of like a, a new wave of feminist consciousness that was just, you know, extremely essential that, you know, there was a, a bit of complacency, I think, around the fact that they, there was certainly not balanced representation on stage, off stage, or on the radio. Um, and that has maintained, although the balance at the radio might be different, it's not necessarily in the credits and the writing and the, you know, some of the things that you and I talk about with regard to like how the money is made now that we are, you know, 30 years later in the music business in the most granular and complex zone of rights management with my current job, you know, I see pretty clearly where these, you know, where the, where the pie is split up and how it's distributed. And it is not by any means close to, you know, 50-50. So, well, so wait, let's, let's connect a couple dots though. Mm -hmm. really so it's so interesting to me because there's a thing with age and high school, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's especially in what was happening at Washington at the time with the division around the Seattle teen dance ordinance and mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the age restrictions around shows. I could have been in high school and you could have been in college, but we were not hanging out. It's like we right. were on two different planets. We were not peers. Sure. <laughs> so sure. for me, I started working at KGRG so young, which was in Auburn, again, between Seattle and Tacoma, and probably stumbled onto one of the fanzines that were being made. And for people that don't know, these fanzines were like unbelievable. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I guess you would take a piece of paper. It was almost like making a vision board and cut right. out lozenges <laughs> and like Sharpies and then go Xerox as many as you can, drop them yeah, off. Yeah, there was over. no Photoshop. We didn't have computers. We, you know, we would, some of the like aesthetic references that, that are still, I think, very powerful. We used a lot of like letter set, you know, rub on letters um, and other, you know, you would print things and blow them up at the copy shop and shrink them. And, you know, they're all, it was, Pastiche, I think, is the sort of style, perhaps, that, that you would reference, but none of it so was cool. designed. <laughs> so cool. I mean, we're going to our hands on those and then again, study again. And the messages that I got that were so influential when I was in high school, and it was a combination. It was from the zines, it was from the music I was listening to, and it was going to the shows. And right. the message was, use your voice you can start your own record label you can start your own band you can make your own merch don't wait for anybody just do right. it and right. also being in control of your body like you were talking mm -hmm. about the wave of feminism and consciousness women were i don't know maybe in some ways even more sex over sexualized than today right like the women you saw in the media and to have someone front a band and have ownership and wear whatever they want and not play into these stereotypes, it just 
as a kid was very, very, very empowering. Like, yeah. and again, that's where representation matters so much. When you see it, then you know you can believe it. And that's why I'm so thankful. That really defined my, just, I mean, that's probably one of the reasons when I started in radio, I knew I could have my own show. And P.S., right. for those people that do not know, my show was Girl Squad. You had to like seek it out still, you know, and you have to be really intentional about it. It wasn't as, you know, available to just like, okay, I'm going to play a male voice, I'm gonna play a female voice or, you know, yeah. something that was not as, you know, hope, hopefully eventually we will get to a point where like that, what you think of as the, you know, the binary is not as required, but you know, it, there is still, and I struggle with that a little bit and in trying to, you know, still want to champion better representation of women um, and underrepresented voices in general that, you know, we're still sort of stuck in this either or zone for a bit, but, um, and I, I don't have all the answers on what the best path is to, to resolve it, but, you know, definitely thinking, I, I think even if we just aim to commit to supporting a, a, a future that is more balanced and representative of, of lots of different voices, we will make some, that will continue to make some progress. And I think that that is kind of, you know, back to your original sort of question or like clarifying what DIY is or, you know, and how that's in, influenced my, my career. It's sort of, you know, the fundamentals and the fundamental sort of simple questions that I ask myself all the time are like, if I don't know how to do this, can I figure it out? If I do figure it out, will that hopefully give someone else a, an example that they could figure it out? And they could do it too if if it's not the most obvious. Um, and we don't have, you know, gender balance in all presidents of every company and every kind of, you know, industry. But maybe bit by bit, people do know that like it is not impossible. So they might as well give it a shot. Um, that's that is as as basic as I I think I can describe my my ge general approach to life. <laughs> Yeah, you know, not to go down a complete rabbit hole, but this just really struck me recently. I got to have an amazing conversation with somebody who inspires me. There's a phenomenal book, and it's written by Dr. Naomi Levy, and it's called uh, Einstein and the Rabbi. Mm -hmm. And um, this rabbi, Dr. Naomi Levy, tells this story, and it's like Da Vinci Code-esque about her quest to find out why Einstein wrote this letter about spirituality to a grieving father. And throughout it, she gives lessons. Mm -hmm. And listening to her, it's so interesting. She was one of the first female rabbis. And I hear her referencing so much connectedness and mysticism and intuition. And it made me realize, like, would my relationship with religion be different if it were brought to us all by women? Because I feel like <laughs> a lot of times with religion, there's like, you know, hierarchy and rules and almost like threats and, and but the way she presents it so differently. And I got to talk to her and I asked her, if she thought religion would be in a better place if it were more often um, taught through the, you know, 
you know, hands of women or, you know, through women. And her answer was, no, there has to be balance. There needs hmm. to be more balance. And it's just, mm -hmm. I think, a microcosm of the whole world. Like, yeah, you, yeah. You, I mean, do everything. Exactly. I mean, you think about like the patriarchal structure we're in or like the institutional racism that we, you know, operate within and, and that we try to, you know, respond to and hopefully correct. It's not that we ever, and I think this was a very core talking point, if you will, before we knew what talking points were, because we were, you know, freshmen in college was, you know, we're not anti-boy, we're pro-girl. Right. Like mm -hmm. that was like the thing that we really had to say a lot because it was shocking and radical and, you know, horrifying to some that we were pro girl explicitly and, you know, implicitly. And so, you know, we would have to sort of caveat, well, you know, we're pro girl, but it's like, you know, I, you know, I've been married, you know, I'm married to a man and I have all, you know, my father is a man, you know, like all of the things that people have to say, like, what would you do if your daughter are like, okay, well, I live with men, you know, I live with men and women. And I want to let a world where all of us have opportunity and encouragement and paths and economic parity um, and health and safety that are, you know, all of these things are fundamental for all of us and they shouldn't be so restricted in their availability. And, and that's, I think those were some of the, the, you know, studying sociology and political economy and ethnic studies and, and feminist studies um, alongside going to shows and wanting to, you know, learn an instrument and loving performing and, and loving hanging out with our friends. I mean, that was definitely another part of when I think back on the energy of like creating then, it was like part of it was because our friends were so cool and so impressive and doing such amazing stuff themselves, we just wanted to kind of feel like we could hang and we had something cool to talk about instead of just, you know, going to the shows and being in the back. And, um, you know, there was a whole, you know, hardcore, you know, scene, uh, underground hardcore scene. Um, and it was also very, like, pretty straight edge. And, um, you know, there were a lot of, like I wasn't in that scene ex exactly, but my friends who were girls who were, you know, really like it was a very, very like almost a hundred percent male vibe. And they, they would always joke about like what you call like the coat hangers, like the girlfriends who would like hold the coats while the guys moshed or whatever. And, you know, there were a couple bands that, you know, had women in them or were, there was Spitboy was like the only one all all female all women band um who are very specifically not riot girl band you know that they were like we're doing it this way <laughs> so, um, so okay so for people that don't know i i just told you this story when we had brunch over the holidays but this blows my mind so <laughs> when i was growing up and again collecting those zines i had my little girl my Girl Squad show, um, the Riot Girl movement was thriving in Olympia, the Seattle area. But to us, even then, it felt underground. Mm -hmm. Like you had to go searching for it. 
most people, like you were saying, being at the frat party, singing beat happening songs, we were the ones that were DJing at our high school parties and everybody was saying, what's this? I also say, I remember going to see Bikini Kill in Seattle at Sailors Union Pacific Hall when I was in high school. And Molly, if they're lucky, there were 32 people in the room. To the <laughs> point that I remember they were performing and Kathleen said, she stopped singing and she said, okay, I'm gonna get off stage and do some cartwheels now. There's <laughs> enough room on the dance floor that she just started doing cartwheels. And right. it's so wild to me that this to me was like my underground high school stuff I know about and wow. how it has traveled. And I told you that I was in Australia and Camp Cope, who are mm -hmm. huge advocates for women in music, um, they sourced the Riot Girl movement as being an mm -hmm. inspir inspiration. And that was the first time I was like, how did it make it to Australia? Mm -hmm. And then we were doing an interview with Nadia from Pussy Riot, and she mm -hmm. said, you know, her jail time and being put away for using her voice, that happens to people every day. But the only way she got out was because of the Riot Girl movement. I'm like, now this lady in Russia is talking about it. And it just blew my mind. Yeah. So well, the I, question I think, is, I think there is, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, like, when did it all really click together? Like mm -hmm. being name or unified force or movement, how intentional was it? Like, when did it click I, together? It, I mean, I would say that it, that that was never a plan. Um, you know, I think we we made a fanzine called Riot Girl in the early summer of 1991. Um, we happened to all be in Washington D.C. That was when we started Bratmobile Bikini, like as a as a three piece with like actual drums and stuff. Because at first it was just a two piece, Allison and me. Bikini Kill had toured across the country and we're going to spend, spend the summer in DC. Um, we were, Allison and I were spending the summer in DC. Aaron, our guitar player was from there and lived there. It's so, it's so interesting that there's such a DC connection, you know, mm -hmm. cause like, isn't girl from DC too? Like, did you know yes. him before yeah. he like, no. moved out and joined no, Nirvana? By that point, I didn't know him, but I mean, certainly cause he was in, in Scream, mm -hmm. um, you know, he was definitely uh in the mix um in a different way and i think when he joined uh nirvana i i don't know i'm sure we have fallen his book right um but uh he was <laughs> he was not and he, I, he lived in olympia but i was never like i didn't ever it wasn't the like same group. right um but but calvin is from washington and um, from DC, I mean, and ended up moving to Olympia. And so there was, that was like already in place. And um, uh, and Brendan from Fugazi, his parents, I think at some point moved to Seattle. So like there were, there were some like kind of weird, you yeah, know, like existential events that sort of, you know, or like you know, accidental events that, that um, made all of these things kind of a little bit more, oh, well, there were, might be a reason to go back and forth. And so when we got there and we were starting to play shows and um, Kathy from Bikini Kill went to Europe, like they toured across the country and then she had a plan to go like on her, I think she had just graduated. And so she was like, I'm gonna go to Europe for a bit on her own, just on a, a trip. And 
So the rest of them were like hanging out in town for the summer. And that's how we started the, you know, sort of like we, we got of bored one night. I didn't really drink. I, I mean, most of us didn't really drink or do anything like that. We just like go to diners, go to shows. We didn't oh, have anything to do that night. Denny's back in the day. Like, did kids still do that? Not to sound a hundred. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, we went to the, what was the tasty diner was our spot in Silver Spring, Maryland. And um, we would, so the, the nights that we didn't have anything to do one night, we're like, okay, well, we went to my dad's office and used his copier. And I got in trouble for that after a while. Um, but we just like made these fancy and we made, they were just like a one page, um, you know, like this folded in four. And so we didn't need that much copy. You know, we, you needed like a cover and a back and you needed eight, eight panels, right? And so we could sort of like, okay, you do each do a panel and we'll do the cover. And what we were trying to do was um, and make them to hand out at shows so that maybe we could like, do you want to, you know, to have a meeting? Um, and there was a group in Washington called Positive Force, which did a lot of the benefit shows. They, they raised funds for all sorts of different kind of, kinds of, um, you know, causes. And um, they let, they had a house, like a group house. And so they let us have a meeting there. And so that Riot Girl was, very much like yeah maybe four people for a minute and then 30 and then it was its own thing and it really was never to be professor obvious what blows my mind about this is there was no website there was no social handle there was no email like you Mm -hmm. literally handed out papers and it started like do you want to go to a meeting yeah this is 30 years ago 30 and 30 30 years exactly um so yeah, no, the technology of, you know, what, what, what might have been possible or what might not have, you know what I mean? Like, it's now it, it all, obviously the connectivity is, is so ubiquitous. Everybody can be connected and you can be connected all over the world. But when we started to play, you know, so, so we did that. We started to write songs. We started to play shows and we started a tour and we would do all of these things like, you know, playing when we went on tour, you know, again, it was like you, you knew who did the shows of your kinds of bands in town. We all stayed on, slept on the floor. We all, you know, like rolled through, um, in a very like rough kind of vibe, (laughs) you know, sometimes like, you know, now in my, in my world, you know, with teens that, that, you know, have expense accounts and, you know, get to travel and they're like, you know, might complain about, some circumstance of their travel, it's very difficult for me not to sort of harken back to when I literally, you know, was sleeping on a hardwood floor uh, on a sheet, you know, um, but that's what you did. And it was, you know, character building. Um, And no, it was just what you did. Um, But I think that manifest. So we also did have advocates who were a little bit more, you know, had some sort of, I guess what you would call a, now media power, right? Like we had advocates like Ann Powers and Evelyn McDonald and other writers who 
wrote for different magazines and different, you know, publications. Where was for- Ann Powers back then? Because I didn't meet her till like 1999 when she was at the New York Times. And I didn't for, associate like, her necessarily with the writing. Maybe, maybe like, I can't, I have to ask. They they had written a book and they were writing a book, Evelyn and Anne, um, called Rock She Wrote. I can't remember like, whether it was like mm-hmm. Village Voice or, um, or Op Magazine. There were like, there were lots of different, um, you know, I, I, I will have to ask them. Um, I, I've got to check on Ann Powers. Damn mm-hmm. algorithms. Either she's not posting or the algorithm changed and hasn't been. She's, I see her. Yeah. I see her on Twitter a lot. I got to get, I got to yeah. jump in with her. <laughs> and Evelyn McDonald is a, is a faculty in journalism at uh, Loyola Marymount. Oh, I don't know um, her. She, she and Ann wrote books together and she's written a number of books as well. Um, and, uh, she was a big advocate. Now she also does, um, she edits a lot of, uh, of books that other people write, but, you know, sort of letter focused on women and, 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 um, women in music. So they, there were some advocates who kind of helped, I think, you know, expose things a little bit more. Um, and that would be, you know, there was, a um, Emily White read a big, uh, article in the the um, Seattle Weekly that was then picked up by almost all the other weeklies in in the country, and so that was another like this is like real organic media, um, and I think helped people find out about it. Um, and then it wasn't an organized like manifested or you know entity. It was like you want to be a Reichel make, you know, start a fanzine, put on shows, start a band, call yourself what you want to call yourself, you know, and, and that was the thing that is honestly so powerful for, you know, when you start a movement to give it away, you know, we've talked also like the people from giving Tuesday did that. They didn't say, this is our thing. And we're the only ones doing marketing the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. They came up with this idea. If you want to do it for your charity, take it. And I love what you say, too, because it started with a handful of bands, you know, connected to D.C. to Olympia. And I love what you said about it grew from four to 30 to probably (laughs) 250. And that was the same band, too, because then when you flash forward to... When I had a driver's license and was like really going to shows and stuff, you had um, an embarrassment of riches of so much good music in Seattle and Olympia of female fronted or, you know, Mm -hmm. bands with women in them to the point that my radio show every single week was that. And well, that's right. And it really grew and blossomed. And I love that people credited it back to that. Well, and I think, you know, for sure, the, you know, that seven year bitch was on its own sort of path that was not, again, that like they were pretty in, in, explicitly like, we are not a radical band. We are our own band. I don't even think they, were, you know, they certainly were punks, but not like, we're not a punk rock band. They were a rock band. Well, that's um, what I asked you. Like, I was mm-hmm. confused in hindsight between seven year bitch, the gits, and Hammerbox with Carrie Ockrey, which then was goodness. Like, you know, again, being in the middle, like did Olympia and Seattle 
front, female fronted rock bands ever intermingle. But yeah, it, no, we, we played shows and, um, you know, we played shows with seven year bitch and, um, and the gets. Um, and, you know, I think, I think at that point, although bikini kill was mostly East coast based. So they didn't, I don't know that they played much. I mean, I'm sure they, they did play shows together. Um, and Allison and other band, that's like a show was like very, very close. And she loved seven year bitch. Like she was, she wore their, their hats and their, their stuff. And she loved, um, the gets and Mia and was, and had a friendship as well. So I think those, the losses of, in those bands, um, you know, losing Mia and Stephanie were very, like, I didn't know them myself. Like, you know, um, but, you know, Allison, I think felt very close and that was a really, really tough hit, um, to lose them. And the, you know, those like when we were getting, you know, when we were still kind of early in our early starting part of our, our band, but. Um, I never got to, I never got to see the gets live. Um, I was working at KGRG when Mia passed and I remember mm -hmm. walking into the studio on a Saturday morning and like the newspaper article was up and that is such a fascinating story that documentary about you know her murder and you know how they found the killer and just tragic yeah. and it's, I it's was wild it's horrible. I was an uber seven year bitch fan, but the beautiful thing that came of it is again, as a high school student, I really benefited from Home Alive. And mm -hmm. you talk about this DIY mentality. Of, mm -hmm. There were women in bands that got killed or, you know, there were these losses and I just love the activation instead mm -hmm. of like leaning into being scared or being sad. They started this organization to give free self-defense classes to anybody that wants them. And yeah. the DIY mentality, like I had no money. I was working at Taco Bell and Safeway to have gas money to go work at Cube for free, right? Yeah. But I could take free self-defense classes, which again, mm -hmm. up my confidence. And I would do things like go send out 500 letters for them and be licking stamps and putting it on and doing mail which might still be present in your you know and how you live your life now right so it's yeah. it's really um yeah it's it's interesting i mean all of those all of the energy i think um of doing things you know like whether it, and for better or worse, and I do reflect on it now in terms of, you know, I mentioned it a little before, like the economic power that comes from, um, you know, and, and what how that is out of balance, you know, whether it's with, you know, people who are executives or the pro or producers or, you know, engineers or songwriters, um, you know, like that wasn't really a priority for us, um, for better or worse. And, you know, I think that that is, there is a lot to be said for art for art's sake and the like purity of creativity and, and how that is, you know, how powerful it is. Um, but I also think, you know, and it does sort of connect a little bit more to what I do right now, which is working with songwriters and helping them collect their micro pennies from mostly streaming services around the world for their songwriting royalties and, and publishing royalties. And, you know, it is like, it is a really wildly com complicated, very 
non-creative zone of the music business. There's nothing less interesting or exciting. It's like doing your taxes, honestly. You know, what I was like, well, so what was it like to you? <laughs> well, what was it like for you to go from somebody in a band in a scene getting your hands dirty to then become a band manager to then join these corporations, whether mm -hmm. it was Kickstarter, A2IM, or now Song Trust, mm -hmm. and like really lean into the business of it, right? Because you know, being a creative and actually using your voice and saying money matters. I want to know the business. I want to be a professional, right? Instead of just like doing it all for the art and sleeping on floors. Was there sure. ever any tension in that with your community? Yeah. I don't, I mean, maybe like, I think the, the part of partially, and I, I often do, I mean, not often, but I do reflect sometimes like, what if I had decided to just be a drummer and had just focused and done the whatever 10,000 hours zone of, you know, getting, you know, honing your craft and what that would have manifest and would that have given me the career sort of security, I guess, that, um, uh, you know, was the reason I didn't do that was I like, I kind of, I, you know, for whatever reason, whether it was self doubt or lack of energy or, you know, wasn't into, uh, you know, I didn't, my world wasn't pop star kind of um, uh, songwriters or performers or bands. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll work at a label. That was my first job in the industry outside of, you know, our band was I worked at Lookout Records and I, I joined there in 94. And um, then through that, like I, you know, did every single job that was available and, and figured it out as I went along. And then we started you know, signing bands that were a little bit more aligned to my own, maybe taste aesthetic, like, and worked with them to sort of help them grow their careers. And, and one of them was the Donnas, um, who were still teenagers when we decided, you know, we decided to work together, all of us. Um, and as the energy around them grew, I like the, you know, sort of like all the, they became more popular. I could see that they needed a little extra attention and I had a little extra time to, to work with them. And, you know, we, we, I became their manager with a partner who was their business manager. And um, we, that was like a whole, that was just a new era, you know, sort of like a new phase of, of um, obviously like it feels pretty specific now, but it was like kind of just happened. Um, and I was definitely motivated by the fact that, you know, as women, I, my band didn't last through our early twenties. So we sort of like exploded and imploded. Um, we got back together after a while, but it was, you know, we kind of needed to work our stuff out from ourselves. And one of the things that I, I hoped to offer was, you know, maybe they won't have to make the same mistakes. We didn't, maybe if I can give them some guidance or just put some of that structure and infrastructure and support around what they're trying to do um you know maybe they'll be that much more successful and maybe that will be a sustainable career um and maybe you know that will all you know versus the fact that there were really no rock bands of all women playing instruments that were you know be 
Babes and Trillin were signed to a major. L7 were signed to a major. They were there were bands that had women or were all women that, you know, had some of those opportunities, but they didn't get the radio support. They weren't pop enough for whatever reason. Um, and that's where we met you, right? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, the radio. stars aligned. I mean, what are the chances? <laughs> I moved to Los Angeles, was working at Kiss FM, and I hear Atlantic signed the Donnas. And I was like, well, that was a great move. I love this. <laughs> And they say, you should meet the manager. And I find out it's Molly from Bratmobile and about fell out. And, uh, so yeah, all of those things, you know, and, and, and it, 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 it did seem to me still similar to like, okay, well, this is a new opportunity. This is a new path. I hadn't worked with record major record companies in any way. And so, you know, getting exposure to the, you know, the Warner global system um, was, um, I wouldn't say refreshing, but it was, you know, interesting. I did learn a lot. Um, the politics, um, some of the, you know, realities of, um, you know, I'll never forget having someone whisper in my ear at a show of the girls, you know, at, in New York, like she shouldn't wear that skirt again, you know, yeah. because it wasn't flattering yeah. um, or whatever it was flattering to this person's values, not to the, hers, right? Um, and the kind of like icky stuff that you had to deal with that was very insidious and almost impossible to prevent in real time. I think we, we, we all have evolved a little bit more. We know the things that we can and can't say or can't or won't accept about appearance and criticism um, and how or like, you know, if, if, for example, someone in that band who didn't feel like they had to scrutinize their physicality and fit a certain size or whatever it was, instead it was embraced and celebrated in the way that you see a lot of people doing now, like so successfully and, and, and so economically successfully, <laughs> you know, like all of the different brands that, you know, go just like how, disgusting um some of those moments that we had to endure and and, and that, that was a big distraction you know that was mm -hmm. a real life suck of time and energy and what could we have if we had prevented that or had avoided it it wasn't an issue at all could we not have focused on the music could we not have focused on sure we want to fit into an album cycle and you know like keep momentum going and and growing but could we have done that in a healthy way because it wasn't healthy i mean we had to those those girls uh you know woke up at the crack of dawn did phoners on the bus all day long meet and greets everything they almost everything they were asked to do they did until they were just about you know shells of people and then you have to cancel things and someone's injured and you know all of the sort of wellness and and sort of preventive work that I think as not certainly not in COVID times when touring is so crazy, but like in, in regular times, I think we have more mechanism for, for a, a life that is not so chaotic for, um, you know, performing artists. Um, but still, you know, they're the, 
I don't know. It, 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 it's tough. And mm-hmm. Molly, the funny thing is, I could do a five-hour interview. <laughs> I know. Well, but maybe we we'll, really maybe have we'll need to do, let's, let's maybe do a part two to this. But okay. overarching, like, you know, so much has changed. It was a very radical idea to have the DIY mentality in the early 90s because many people you know, thought back then you had to get signed to a record label to be successful or, you know, you had to do all these things, have a manager that knew somebody. And you guys were kind of first in saying like, no, we're just going to do our own shows. We're going to book our own Mm -hmm. shows, make our own merch, like the whole thing. Now we're living in a world where you could pretty much control the whole music business from your cell phone, right? Whether it's recording an album, doing the social media, DMing, connecting with fans and things like that. Um, What advice to creators do you have in 2022 with that DIY spirit, especially as somebody that sits atop song trust and is advocating again for people to, you know, get what they deserve, get their money, like own their business. Right. I mean, I think that that is sort of the, uh, with in the music business the last few years with all of the catalog sales and all the sales of rights you know the the most recent um springsteen you know another example of you know you know the icons of our industry sort of thing like hey sure you know now's the time i'm gonna you know you want to give me x hundreds of millions i think that's the best move so i my work focuses primarily on giving access to the infrastructure around music publishing rights and royalty, sort of, you know, how they're allocated, processed, and paid um, for publishing rights to a lot of people who have never really been part and participated in the full pie. Like, they maybe they were members of ASCAP or BMI and they could get their performance royalties. And the MLC started two years ago. Maybe they could get the their MLC, you know, now they can get their streaming mechanicals domestically, but, you know, around the world, this network is no less complicated in every single country. And that's kind of what we do. So I feel like if we can help people understand that there's work to do, you do have to sort of maintain your data. You have to maintain, you know, how your rights are managed so you can get everything that you're owed. If at some point, whether it's three years, five years, or 25 years, you want to have a big event, you want to sell your rights outright, you can make that call from a very strong position of understanding and autonomy uh, versus having to, because that was the only deal offered to you, you know, front and center. And I think there's going to be more progress in our industry around like, you know, whether you need a little bit of money up front to do the creative work, but it doesn't mean you give up 50% of your rights for perpetuity. Oh, there's your, I was like, is that my kid or your kid? <laughs> yeah, Ruby, we're just finishing this interview. Give me, give me five minutes. Hi, Ruby. Nice okay, to see you. Back in your room, okay? Thanks. <laughs> she looks like America. too. Well, I was like, I was like looking at myself and you at the same time and I'm like, Oh, <laughs> the way she's stuck <laughs> I love it. But anyway, I, I mean, I think that that's the, I think that is the, the message that I think is more available than ever. It's like these systems for getting your music on services, 
without giving up ownership, for getting your royalties without getting, giving up ownership, for exploiting them in the most creative way you possibly can in every angle, whether it's a sink or something else. You know, you don't have to give up your ownership. Um, you can be a partner with companies. You can, you know, call the shots. And the more, you know, it sucks maybe to do like a little bit of business administration, just like it does suck to do your taxes. But once you do it, you know where things are and like that daily or weekly maintenance of your your business makes your creativity that much more powerful and um, exciting in, in my view. So that's, let's leave it there. You tell me, uh, whenever you invite me, Julie, I will be there. I love it so much. I, I just <laughs> am so thankful and from the bottom of my heart, deeply appreciate every single thing you did for women in music from, you know, day one, even though we weren't connected, like energetically, it reached me. And like I said, really formed a big part of who I am today. And, uh, you know, well, you know, it's just the, the start of the, you know, all, the fact that we've been connected for the past, I think, almost 20 years in different ways. And, you know, now we live in the same town and we're moms. And, um, you know, that's there's so much more to talk about. Well, that's, <laughs> what, that's what that's what my biggest takeaway from our chat was, is maybe it just all starts with a meeting. Right. Because mm -hmm. you and I have. Uh, sat and chatted about how we change the world <laughs> or help more people or reach more people or help women in music. But maybe we just figure out like how to start a meeting and just start doing it. Right. Yep. 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 For sure. For sure. Isn't it funny when you set out to like get information and help other people and you help yourself? I just got my. <laughs> it's true. Like, you know, and I think giving ourselves the space to like find some inspiration, especially right now with all that we're trying to manage. Um, it's, it's, you know, more important than ever. So thank you also for the, for the time to reflect. Cause that's one of the things like, you know, you go, go, go. And you don't think about like, Oh, what have I accomplished? What have I, you know, why did that happen? Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm, I'm excited to sort of give myself a little more time for. How do you, um, how can people find you if they want to know more or know more about um, I'm on, I think I'm pretty available on Twitter and LinkedIn, Instagram. And go um, ahead and give your ham handle. Molly D. Newman. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, All Molly. Right. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. You too. Um, okay. And we'll talk more soon. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thanks again for listening to the Idea Fountain. I'm Julie Pilot. You can sign up for our newsletter and hear all past episodes at my website, juliepilot.co. That's J-U-L-I-E-P-I-L-A-T dot co. And of course, follow us on Instagram at the Idea Fountain. This episode of the Idea Fountain is dedicated to Dr. Edgar Kahn. He was the very first guest I ever had on the Idea Fountain. He is the founder and inventor of time banking, and he passed away last week at 86. Um, you know, it's so special when somebody inspires you and changes your life. I'm really thankful for that connection and the time. Uh, he will forever have a huge place in my heart, and maybe you could help honor him too by going back and listening to that first episode and learning 
learning about the concept of time banking. Rest in peace, Dr. Edgar Kahn.